Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Hello, this morning, we're going to be continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippians. So grab your Bibles. I hope you have your Bible with you. I want you to see what we're going to be talking about this morning in your very own copy of God's Word. And if you don't have one, you need one, um, please come see me. My mic is not on. Getting this the signal. Okay. How's that? Is that better? Okay, cool. All right. Thank you. Anyway, if you need a Bible, um, please come see me. I'd love to give you one. Well, this morning as we, we're going to start our journey into the main body of Paul's letter. So far, we've really been dealing with Paul's introductory um, things. And we're going to see this morning in our text, the verse or the phrase that many believe is really the overarching theme of Philippians. Paul's kind of main point and everything else flows out of that. Many questions this morning that are relevant to us will be answered. What what type of life are we to live? What does it mean to live as a citizen of heaven? What what type of things characterize the Christian life? How how do we understand the relationship between our faith in Christ and our work for Christ? How do we live as Christians in a society that fundamentally opposes us and our message? What hope do we have? Where does our faith come from? If God loves us, why do we suffer? which is a lot to chew, but we're going to chew it this morning. And by the grace of God, we will hear from his word and be encouraged this morning. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Almighty God, eternal and merciful, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray this morning that you would open our minds, illuminate our minds as we look at your scripture, that we may perfectly understand your word this morning, that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word, that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto your majesty. We pray this to you, our Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by reading our text. Uh, It's only four verses, but again, What we're going to see is that verse 27 is is key to the message of the entire book of Philippians. And and by extension, it's extremely important for our lives and our faith. And and as you hear the text this morning, I want you to note a couple things. One, Paul is going to give a command, and he's going to give two reasons for this command. And the main theme that we're going to see this morning is that we must live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. We must live our lives worthy of the gospel of the gospel of Christ. Paul Paul tells us this, and then he gives two marks, two reasons, two marks of a heavenly citizen. And so with that, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 27 through 30 this morning. So as we read it, I hear now, this is God's word inspired and errant. God breathed the words of Holy Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The first thing we must, must grab onto in these words of the Apostle Paul this morning is, is again this main theme. Christians are to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel. Christians are to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel. In other words, we are to live our lives in a way that reflects the truth of the gospel of Christ. We are to behave as heavenly citizens in light of the gospel of Christ. Our lives must align with what we say we believe about Jesus. And this is incredibly important to the Apostle Paul. He begins verse 27, you see, with the word only. And this word signals a transition in Paul's letter. He's, he's moving on from updating them on his, his condition and his thoughts on the future to, okay, this is what I have to say to you. This word only also signals, signals that whatever comes after it is of incredible importance. I like the way the HCSB translate this word. It says, just one thing. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, this is one thing that I need you to hear. This is the main thing I need you to hear. And what is it? What is the one thing Paul wants the Philippians and us to hear this morning? What's the rest of verse 27? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of of the gospel of Christ. Now, this phrase contains a very unique Greek word that is only found here. And you'll see most of your translations probably have a footnote on this phrase at the bottom that, that probably says something like an alternate translation like, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this term would have struck the Philippians specifically hard, and Paul uses it here because of their context. In the very first sermon in the series, we talked about Philippi. And how Roman the city was. The Philippians were all about citizenship. They knew what it was to be a citizen. This is one of the reasons why we've entitled our series Citizens. See, they knew that to be a Roman citizen was a great honor. But that it also came with certain privileges and certain obligations. If you were a Roman citizen, you must live in a way that is worthy of Rome. You must reflect the glory of Rome in your life. In your conduct. Paul's using that same idea here and concept to kind of grasp the Philippians' attention. But he's talking about a different kind of citizenship. A heavenly citizenship. A citizenship in the gospel. In fact, in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul says explicitly to the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, if you are a believer in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. Your true residence is in heaven with Christ. Paul references this idea in many other passages, saying that we are seated with Christ above and and things like this. And what Paul is telling the Philippians is, is that this message is from God to us, that we are to discharge our duties as citizens of heaven in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
We got to live our lives in a way that makes sense of what the good news of Jesus Christ is about. Our behavior must match our beliefs. That's what Paul is saying. Now to make sure exactly, we understand exactly what Paul is saying and isn't saying here, I want to work through this phrase backwards. So we are to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, what is the gospel of Christ? It is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the news of what Jesus accomplished in his death upon the cross. The gospel of Christ is the great victory announcement of the Son of God. It is the sum and substance of the Christian's faith in life. It is the sum and substance of my life and your life. If you are here this morning and have faith in Christ, the gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means. But, but what is the bad news? Well, the bad news is that all of humanity is utterly corrupted by sin. Because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity has become corrupt corrupt in our nature. All of humanity is in rebellion against their creator, God. Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3 that all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy and utterly separate from humanity. He is also entirely and perfectly just and righteous. And because of this, he cannot tolerate sin and no sinner can ever enter into his presence. And this is the state of all of us outside of Christ. Lost, condemned, under the just judgment of God. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, your faith is not in Christ, this is is your circumstance. This is your position, and rightfully so. But there is hope. And this is where the good news comes in. Because God, in His mercy, 2,000 years ago, there was a child born. The very Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. God entered into our human flesh and walked among the dusty streets of ancient Israel. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, never committing a sin. Even though He was innocent, the Jewish leaders hated Him. And they sought to put him to death. They falsely accused him before a Roman court. And Jesus, though innocent, gave himself up to be executed. He was mocked. He was spat on. He was beaten to a bloody pulp with rods and whips. And that day, outside of Jerusalem, outside the city gates, they led him. They took Jesus, the very creator of the universe, the king of all creation, And nailed him to a Roman cross. And then, as he was lifted up for all to see, his hands outstretched, nails in his wrists and in his feet, he was killed. Placarded like a a trophy animal, like a common criminal, like a slave, shamed in front of everyone. But none of this was the worst part. See, Scripture teaches us that during this time, the very wrath of Almighty God was poured out upon Christ. In that moment on the cross, Jesus bore the full penalty, the full weight of the wrath of God for the sins of his people. On the cross, he became a curse in our place. The perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God took our sins upon himself and his body on the tree. 
he became sin who knew no sin. And as he prepared to give himself over to death, he shouted, It is finished. And he died. His disciples were distraught. They were lost. They doubted. But three days later, he rose again just as he had predicted. Because death could not hold the Christ. Death could not hold the King. Death could not defeat our King, Jesus. His resurrection was the sign to us from God that He had conquered. And that He had won our salvation. That He is victorious. Satan has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Jesus had purchased us with His own life. He had purchased us with His own blood. He stood in our place condemned. And now we stand in His place righteous. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. He's purchased our salvation. Not because He looked down on us and thought we were lovely. Not because we did anything to earn it. But simply because He loved us even while we were his enemies. And that is what we celebrate every time we come to the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ given for us. It's the victory feast of the Lamb. And now, and now the call goes out to all humanity to turn from your sin. You don't have to be enslaved to your sin any longer. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Christ and to all who believe upon Jesus sins will be entirely forgiven. You will receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. The wrath of God in your place will be satisfied. Your sins entirely forgiven. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will be sanctified. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You will be glorified and one day you and I will dwell in the new Jerusalem with Him in paradise forever, in the presence of God. Salvation has come by grace through faith in Christ. That is the announcement of the gospel. That is the proclamation of the gospel. It is the announcement of victory, complete and total victory by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is best summed up by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, And you were dead, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was our state before Christ, dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was our state. That was our state. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So he didn't look down and see, oh, look, they're kind of good. I guess I'll save them. No, no. Because simply of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, why has God done this? Why has he saved us? 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. What an amazing, life-changing, unbelievable message. The greatest of all of immeasurable love placed upon his enemies. That's why Christ died. And all, all for the purpose that he might continue to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You'll notice in that passage, there was, there was nothing about any actions that we took. This is all the work of God on our behalf. While we were dead, God saved us. He made us alive together with Christ. That is the victory announcement. That is the good news. This is, that's the gospel of Christ. And this is what Paul calls us to live lives worthy of. You were dead in your sin and Jesus made you alive See, the gospel is not, not what we can do, but what Jesus has done on our behalf. And I want you to hear that this morning. The, the gospel is not something you can live. You know, we hear that sometimes. Live the gospel. No, it's not something you can live. It's an announcement. You can't live an announcement. We're not called to be the gospel. The gospel is rather something we can live in light of. We can live lives worthy of it. See, the good news of the gospel is, is not that now God has made it possible for you to work your way towards him. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is what Christ has accomplished. The gospel is not what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? It is finished, he cried. It is a divine rescue operation. Jonathan Edwards said it best when he said this, You contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. And that's exactly right. And you need to keep this at the forefront of your mind as we look to this phrase, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Well, what does this mean? It means to live your life in a way that is in accord with the truth of the gospel that we just heard. It means that your actions, your decisions, your, everything about your life fits with what you say you believe about Jesus Christ. It means that you live as if this gospel that we just heard proclaimed is actually true. It means that as we sung this morning, your hope really is Christ. You've placed all of your hope on him and you truly believe that everything else is sinking sand. Now there are two dangerous errors when we come to a command like this. And each of us here probably tends to think, and no, 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 I'm for so perfect, tend to, to go in one of these two ways. So as I describe these two errors, I want you to search your heart. Think, think about your thinking and where your heart tends to go and correct yourself where it's needed. The first error when we come to a command like this uh, is what I'll call moralism or legalism. Now this person, here's a phrase like this, only let your life, manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And they might say something like this, okay, well, I need to get to work. I've got a lot to, I better try harder. I don't think my life's worthy. I better try harder. I've got to please God. I can, I've got to earn 
God's love back because I've been failing. This person hears or views the commands of God as as something they can do. They can accomplish something that, that God expects them to accomplish in their own power. Something that God is kind of waiting on them to fulfill before he can bless them. This person views their obedience to God as payback. I've got to pay God back for what he's done for me. God has given me salvation. Now it's up to me to to make something of it. Although they may not admit it, the the moralist believes that God's love on them is essentially conditional. Conditioned on their obedience. God's love is based on their obedience. In reality, this person's faith doesn't really, it's not really in Christ, but their faith is in their own faith. Their faith is in their ability to obey. They're trusting their own faith and their own works to get themselves to heaven, to get themselves into God's good graces. They hear commands like this as a great burden to be fulfilled, to keep God happy, to stay on his good side. They tend to view God as, as cold, as a distant rule giver who must be placated with the fulfilling of burdensome commandments. This person hears a command like this and thinks, great, another thing I have to add to my to-do list. Okay. The moralist, the the legalist, the the person tending to think this way is sometimes crushed by the weight of all this. But they don't turn to Christ. They turn back to their own work. This person often becomes spiritually exhausted, bitter, bitter lacking in generosity towards others because they're trying so hard to fulfill the commandments in their own power. But this person in reality is not understanding the gospel. They don't really believe in the grace of God at the end of the day. There is also another version of this moralist person, though this person. The other, the other version of the moralist doesn't really believe in the seriousness of sin. See, because if, if you think that in your own power you can fulfill all the commandments of God, you don't have that high of a view of the commandments of God and you don't think you're that sinful. This person hears this and thinks, yeah, I've, I could do that. I'm pretty much fine. Yeah, that's good. I've got that in the bag. They think they're just fine maybe because they come to church on a regular basis. They give some money every now and then. They do their best to avoid any big sins. Yeah, my life's just fine. This is the person who simply shows up kind of plays the church game and goes home. They say they believe, but really it's just kind of an intellectual assent. Their life doesn't really have any fruit, no desire for Christ. Simply have a desire to kind of get their ticket punched, their get-out-of-hell-free card. They think they're okay, but the reality is far from the truth. They view themselves as okay because they're not like those people. Often when confronted with sin, the moralist responds in defensiveness. Hope really isn't on Christ, but again, on their own faithfulness, their own abilities to obey. So that's, that's the moralist. That's one error. This person doesn't understand the gospel. They don't understand God's grace. They don't understand the seriousness of sin. This person lives as if the Bible never says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a, it's a position of truth without grace. But that is not what Paul means by only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's not saying, so you better earn God's love. Get to work, buddy. That's the error of moralism. But the second error is seemingly the opposite of that. And the big fancy theological word is antinomianism, which simply just means no law. 
This person talks so much about God's grace, so much that God is so good, God is love, that they exclude any mention of sin. This person is all grace and no truth. They don't view sin as a serious problem because, hey, God's forgiven us. God is love, they say. God accepts you just where you are. You don't need to change. God loves everyone. This person follows their heart and lusts wherever it leads them. I've been forgiven. God's got grace. They indulge in sin without a second thought because, hey, it's all grace. It's all of grace. It's all all grace. They make no effort to follow God's commands and they blame it all on God's grace. All grace and no truth. But in reality, while these two errors are seemingly opposites, they're really two sides of the same coin. Neither of them understand the depth of sin and neither of them understand the gospel. Neither of them understand the need for grace. Both of these people, the the moralists and the antinomian, have taken their eyes off of Christ. Both of them, neither of them, I should say, believe that God is good. Neither of them understand the amazingness of grace. And therefore, as far as your thinking is infected with these, and again, we all tend to go one of these two ways, it will hinder your ability to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because to let your, man, your, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ means to live as if the gospel is actually true. To live as if you will never, ever, ever be able to earn God's love. To live as if sin is devastating, vile, and wicked. To live as if Christ is king. And to live as if God's commands are good. If you have forgotten that God is good and merciful, you can't live this way. You can't live in light of the gospel if you misunderstand the gospel. You can't live in light of the gospel if if you've cheapened the gospel. See, to live a, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is to feast on the grace and unconditional love of God and let that fuel our lives and our work. If your walk with God isn't going well, it's not just that you aren't good enough. It's not that you need to try harder. It's that you don't understand the gospel. You need to catch a bigger vision of who Jesus is. You need to drink deeply from the wells of God's grace and love. See, the person who lives a life worthy of the gospel is not the person who is morally perfect. It's not moral perfection. It's the person who keeps their eyes on Christ and immerses themselves in God's gospel of grace and is transformed by it. The gospel fuels this person's obedience. And when they feel the weight of God's commands, they don't look to their own behavior, but fly to Christ and the mercy of God. The gospel fuels this person's obedience, and because they are not trying to earn God's love, they are filled with joy and free. This is the basis of their obedience. And if you fear you are not living a life worthy of the gospel, the solution, again, is not to just white-knuckle it and try really hard to just double down on the air of moralism. No, the solution is to look to Christ. The solution is to refresh yourself once again in the grace of God found in His Son. It is to preach the gospel to yourself. It's to remember the goodness of God. This is the only way to move forward in the Christian life. This is what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Listen to how Tim Keller describes this. I love this. Listen to what he says. This is extremely important. He says this, The gospel is not just the ABCs, 
but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. That's exactly it. That is what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Being transformed day by day by the love of God and believing the gospel more and more as life goes on. And as we believe the gospel more deeply, our minds will be transformed and our lives will evidence this transformation. By the grace of God, our lives will bear witness to the awesome grace and power of God. Simply put, the gospel transforms us through the power of the Holy Spirit while our eyes are on Christ and his mercy as we seek to live day by day in a way that honors him. This is the one thing that Paul wants the Philippians to hear above all else. And it's the one thing he wants you to hear above all else this morning. Christians are to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. But why? Why does Paul want them to live this way? Why is this especially important for Philippians and for us? Well, Paul gives two reasons. The first is this. Citizens of heaven must stand together fearlessly and firmly because the opposition is fierce. Citizens of heaven must stand together fearlessly and firmly because the opposition is fierce. In other words, we must be unified as believers because the world is strongly opposed to Jesus and his message and by extension to us. We must unite together fearlessly and firmly as we face the enemies of God. Look at verse 27 and 28. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that... Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Do you see the connection? We must live as citizens of heaven worthy of the gospel of Christ so that we will be unified as believers, so that we will be able to stand firm against God's enemies, united in one purpose, united in one mind, one spirit. If we live lives worthy of the gospel, we will be fearless in the face of opposition. You see how crucial that is for the mission of the church, for the mission of our church. And notice something, the call to live as citizens worthy of the gospel is not a command to individuals, it's a command to a church. This calling is given to us as a group of believers. Together, we must seek to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ so that we can stand firm together as we seek to advance the mission of the gospel. What a vision for a church. Paul's call is just as much to our church today as it was for the Philippians back then. But his call is not just to be unified. It is to be unified in mission It's to be unified as we pursue our mission as a church. He says that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And what is the church doing? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to stand firm, united in purpose, united in soul as we strive, as we push forward, as we work side by side, shoulder to shoulder for the spread of the gospel in our community. You see that? The the, the language Paul uses here is, is military language. 
I think I have a couple of pictures here. It gives the image of a Roman legion standing shoulder to shoulder with their shields linked together. They move as a unit. This was the power of the Roman army. They didn't fight as individuals. They fought as units. And this is what Paul's telling the Philippians. Remember, many, many Roman veterans lived in Philippi. They moved with one mind. They moved as, as one body. They marched side by side, leaving no room for the enemy to break in. And they stood firm in the face of opposition because they all had each other's backs. They move forward, united in one purpose, to defeat the enemy. The church, our church, must be the same. You see, if we are seeking to live lives worthy of the gospel, this is not an individual pursuit. We will seek together, united, to spread the gospel. If we really believe that Christ's victory is good news, is as good as we say it is, we will attempt to share it, even if our attempts are feeble. And how will we do this? Paul tells us. Side by side, striving together, united in a single purpose, making Christ's name known throughout the world, throughout the city of Orange. It's hard work, obviously. Paul's language acknowledges that. But it is the reason the church exists in this world. It's the reason why when you get saved, Jesus doesn't just pull you out of the world. We've got work to do. And why is it hard? Well, because, as Paul says, the opposition is fierce. There is opposition to us. In our mission to spread the gospel, we face a mighty enemy. Satan hates the church. He is doing everything he can to destroy the church and stop the spread of the gospel. There's plenty of evidence of that even in the history of this church. All throughout scripture are continuous warnings that there are threats from inside and outside the church. And all of these threats we still face today. If we are not united, we will not be able to stand firm against them. But if we are united under the banner of Christ, nothing will be able to touch us. Paul's call to us is to stand fearlessly in the face of all of this. There's a high cost of being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Governments may try to shut us down. Friends and family may ostracize us. People may look at us strange. We will face ridicule, mocking. We may lose our jobs, our possessions. We may suffer verbal physical abuse. They may call us intolerant, bigoted, or whatever. But in the face of that, we must stand firm together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, united. Why? Because our faith is in Christ, and ultimately He will be victorious. That's why Paul writes in verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. You see, when we face opposition in our mission to spread the gospel, it is evidence that the enemies of God will be destroyed and that we will be saved. We endure persecution and suffering, knowing that one day God's justice will be meted out to all who continue to oppose Him and His people. Our humble unity and our efforts to advance the gospel give testimony to this. Paul explains this in more detail. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, he writes this, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence, the same word there, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. 
since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see, Jesus is returning and on that day, all will be set right. Those who oppose God's will will be destroyed and those who believe in Christ will be saved. Knowing this, Paul calls us to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by our opponents. This this is the fruit of the life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we've seen that Christians are to live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel, and we've seen that citizens of heaven must stand together fearlessly and firmly because the opposition is fierce. But Paul has one last encouragement for us this morning, and it's this. Citizens of heaven are given faith and suffering by God. Citizens of heaven are given faith and suffering by God. In other words, all that we've heard about this morning, both our faith and our suffering comes to us from God. Faith and suffering are the marks of a true believer because God is the one who graciously gives both to us. Look at what Paul says in verse 29 and 30. He writes this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In other words, church, God is sovereign over it all. God is the one who gives faith and God is the one who gives suffering. Nothing happens outside of his will. Isn't that amazing? If you are here today and are a believer in Christ, it's not because you're smarter than other people. It's not because you did something to deserve it. It's not because you have done anything to earn it. It's not because you chose God. It's not because you were good enough. And it's not because you obeyed. No, if you have faith in Christ, this text tells us it's because it was graciously granted to you by God himself. For the sake of Christ. When you were dead in your sin, God chose you and granted you to believe in Christ Jesus. But this text doesn't tell us only that God grants faith, but that He has also graciously granted that we will suffer for the sake of Christ. You see, we are identified with Christ by faith in Him, and we are identified with Christ by our suffering for Him. And it's all a gracious gift, both faith and suffering. How, how, how is suffering a gift? How, how does that make any sense? Well, well, through our suffering, God molds us into the image of Christ. Through our suffering, he makes us like Jesus. We all want to be like Jesus, right? We want to follow after him. Well, he suffered. And we must suffer as well to be like him. Martin Luther once quipped, they gave Jesus a crown of thorns 
and you would expect a crown of roses? No. See, Jesus suffered, and so we will suffer likewise. It's a gracious gift of God to make us like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But, but look what comes next. See, in verse 30, Paul says this, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. In other words, Paul is saying, we're all in this together. You're not on your own. The Philippians had seen Paul beaten and jailed. Paul is still, he's writing to them from a different prison. He essentially tells them, you are not the only ones suffering. I am suffering as well, but it is worth it. Keep going, stay strong. We're in this together. This is, in other words, this suffering is, is not out of the ordinary. It is part of their Christian life. We, we live in a community. We advance the gospel as a community and we suffer as a community. Side by side, united in purpose. That is the charge to us this morning in this text. Brothers and sisters, we are all in this together. As we keep our eyes on Jesus and God's mercy, let us live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let us stand firm and strive side by side to advance the gospel. And let us give glory to God for our faith and for our suffering, enduring it, knowing that God is in control and working all of this for His glory and our good. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.